So, welcome to the LSE, uh, everyone. Uh, my name is Zainab Kaya. I'm with the LSE Middle East Center, uh, and uh, I'm working on the Kurd on, on the Kurds on Iraq and gender and, and other things. Uh, and I'm very excited to be here today uh, and talking about methodology. Uh, when it comes to the study of the Kurds, um, we discuss a lot the politics uh, and, and other issues. But the, as researchers, uh, our experiences of conducting research on this, on this topic, um, and uh, in terms of interviews, in terms of um, uh, engaging with the field, um, there is a lot to discuss, as this book shows us, uh, which I'm sure you, have, you must have seen. Uh, so I'm really excited to discuss the book and its contents uh, with um, some of the authors uh, and, and the editors um, uh, who um, brought this book into production. Um, methodological approaches in Kurdish studies, theoretical and practical insights from the field. Uh, so we are delighted to launch this book and we are also delighted that this is part of the Kurdish studies series uh, that we have initiated last year with uh, Robert Lowe at the Middle East Center. And our aim is to uh, bring scholars, um, the public, um, researchers uh, together to discuss different aspects of, of the Kurd Kurdish politics uh, in an academic platform uh, and learn from each other and engage with it. So all our events are public. Uh, and through these interactions, we have met lots of people and lots of, uh, have a lot of interesting discussions as well. So we are looking forward to carrying on. Uh, holding more events. I think we have one more, two more events coming up in the, in the uh, land term. So if you are registered to the LSE Middle East Center's uh, newsletter, you'll hear about those events. Uh, but before, we, we, have, we have quite a lot of speakers and we have one more person joining us via Skype, so I won't take too much of uh, the time. Quickly, we'll introduce our speakers. Um, and then uh, it will be great uh, maybe during question and answers as everyone introduces themselves as well because we have a small group uh, kind of like a research seminar so uh, let's be interactive and hear, hear your thoughts as well in the, um, in the process. So our first speaker is Bahar, Bahar Bashar. She's, uh, <coughs> hopefully she won't be delivering her baby today. Are there any midwives around you? <laughs> um, no, so we are Thank you, Bahar, for coming uh, and, and for initiating this, this, this event, and it's great to have you here. Bahar is an associate professor at the Center for Trust, Peace, and Social Relations at Coventry University. Her research interests include ethno-national conflicts and political violence, conflict resolution, third-party mediation, migration, and diaspora studies. Her current research projects are Kurdistani Jews in Israel, Funded by the CBRL and uh, Youth and Violence and Conflict Transformation, uh, funded by the Ferguson Trust. Uh, she does a lot of lots of other things as well, but we have no time to go through all of that, so I'm just cutting it short. Yasin, who is not here, but she will he will contact connect us uh, via Skype, um, is a PhD candidate at the same place in Coventry. His research focuses on the role of intergroup relations in the integration of Syrian refugees in Turkey. Along with his academic studies, Yasin has also been working as a psychological support consultant, providing consultancy services to the international humanitarian organizations in Turkey. 
Francis, to my uh, left, Francis O'Connor is a postdoctoral researcher at the Peace Research Institute in Frankfurt. He just flew to London this evening uh, to be with us. His research focuses on social movements and civil wars. He has co-authored two books of, on anti-austerity protests in the European periphery and social movement engagement in self-determination referendum campaigns in Scotland and Catalonia. He's currently writing a book on the relationship between the PKK and its support networks. When is it coming out? <laughs> uh, it should be out. First, it had it hit a small obstacle just before I was signing the contract, which on next year should be out. Okay, Fingers great. Crossed. We are looking forward to it. Um, Mark Sinaminro, uh, right on my right, far end, is a PhD candidate here at LSE in international relations. Uh, his research interests include historical sociology, intellectual history, and political theory, including international political sociology with a focus on the connection between the global and the local. Finally, Begum Zorlu uh, is a PhD candidate in the Department of International Politics at City University of London. Her research focuses on political parties and contentious politics in Latin America and the Middle East. She's learning Spanish at the moment as part of her PhD. She's interested in the dynamics of peace processes, foreign policy, and documentary photography. Great to have you guys here. So let's start. Bahar, I think you're starting off. Starting yes. off. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Zeynep. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to this book lounge. It's a, it's a pleasure for us uh, to be here. Uh, unfortunately, I just need to tell you that Yasin cannot make it for technical problems. Okay. He was supposed to be here, um, and he was going to present his work uh, in Rojava, but uh, he had to go to Turkey, and uh, he thought he could Skype in, but uh, he couldn't, uh, which will give us more time to talk about our own experiences. Um, actually, uh, my part was just to introduce the rationale of the book for five minutes, but now that Yasin is gone, I will just use another five minutes. <laughs> uh, so, um, um, it, it is a, it's a, it's really a pleasure for me to talk about this book because this has been uh, my dream for a very long time, uh, writing about my fieldwork experience since I finished the PhD. I mean, I remember having discussions about the challenges I've been facing during my fieldwork with Professor Ibrahim Sirkeji already in 2008, so it's been a lot of time uh, since then. Uh, but uh, I managed to... Uh, uh, meet uh, really amazing people like my co-editors Marito Iwanan Begum and uh, Yasin and then we came up with this book. Um, what makes this book really special for us is that uh, as far as we know it's the first attempt to talk about uh, our methodological approaches but also about, about fieldwork uh, in Kurdish studies. Um, so of course it has uh, its shortcomings. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't cover every topic about this issue and uh, we started with a lot more authors but as in every edited book or special issue we had to you know lose a lot of people on the way. Uh, especially the crackdown in Turkey on academics didn't really help and many people uh, started having you know more serious problems rather than thinking about writing book chapters so but still we have valuable <coughs> contributions and I think um, what we had in mind with this book was mostly we thought uh, for master's students for PhD students who are about to embark on fieldwork uh, this will act like a handbook 
and uh, it will it will not show them it will not give a recipe of uh, how field work is done but it will show them that field work has challenges there are a lot of issues we need to consider and they are not alone and uh, whatever happens in field work it shouldn't be considered as a failure it's part of the process and uh, the contribu contributions deal with ethics uh, issues related to trust access uh, researcher positionality, insider outsider perspectives, and uh, how these are negotiated in the field, uh, in the course of the field work. So we try to push the boundaries a little, uh, you know, take the issue out of this insider outsider dichotomy. But we we try to show how complex these issues are, and um, and uh, I think our authors managed to do that. They approach the, these issues from different perspectives. Uh, so um, I think in the end we have a very good uh, discussion. So I see this book as a conversation starter rather than, you know, this is the book and we said everything. It will start conversations in Kurdish studies, especially among Kurdish and non-Kurdish scholars. Uh, how do we reconcile our differences? How, how can we produce meaningful um, academic work but also non-academic work which talks to each other rather than alienating each other. Uh, so I think um, what is special also about this book is that uh, most of the authors are early career researchers, so they are not established scholars. And it's not common for us to talk about our failures and challenges in fieldwork. We are sort of uh, programmed to just talk about our successes. Oh, my article is published in this journal. Uh, this publisher wants to you know, uh, publish my manuscript. I presented my work at the European Union, etc. But we really don't talk about, you know what happened to me in fieldwork? Something totally crashed me, and then it took me ages to get back to my work, etc. We don't talk about these things, at least in public. In this book, uh, every author was very honest about their experience, and uh, they talked about, you know, what it meant to be a Turk in the field, what it meant to to be a female Kurdish returnee in Iraqi Kurdistan, etc. So everybody talked about the complexities, and. Uh, we, I think what we managed was to challenge this insider-outsider dichotomy a little bit. We show that sometimes there can be moments of insiderness and outsiderness. Uh, you know, women can find moments of solidarity, although they are from different ethnic or religious backgrounds, etc. And in fieldwork, it's not that simple. And sometimes, like, for example, our Kurdish authors mentioned that although they thought they were insiders when they were embarking on fieldwork in, in Kurdistan, they, because they were born in the diaspora, they their experience was completely different than what they had in mind before. And uh, it was the same for me. So now that Yasin is not presenting, <laughs> I just want to talk about why this book came out at the first place. So uh, the idea came out uh, when I was with my colleague, and uh, I also call her my academic soulmate, uh, Marie Toywanan, in Hevlar in 2012. Uh, we were at the World Kurdish Congress, and um, it was a random conversation. We we said we talked about our outsider experience, how we are feeling in Kurdistan, and how 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 hard it is to do field work in an environment that we have no prior experience before, etc. And uh, so um, when we talked about our experiences, we realized that although we were outsiders, we had completely different. 
uh, experience. Uh, we were both researching the, the Kurdish diaspora and activism and mobilization. She looked at Finland and France. I looked at Germany and Sweden. And uh, we were completely different. For example, um, I don't want to repeat her narrative here because I don't know if I can represent her, but she was basically saying that because she's from Finland, uh, her Kurdish interviewees assumed that she was um, pro-Kurdish because Finnish stance uh, about the Kurdish issue was very positive. And my experience was much more complex because um, I, I'm Turkish, but I never actually had to think about it because I, before I started working on this issue. And uh, when I met my interviewees, I was automatically categorized as a Turkish person. And uh, some of them would be, uh, oh, you're a white Turk. Why are you working on this issue? You know, you're not even Alawite. Somebody told me that. I also put it in the book. So, okay, uh, we understand you're not Kurdish, but not even Alawite. But why would you do this? Why, why are you interested in this topic? And uh, when they first, in the fieldwork, when I first encountered these comments, I was just like 24 years old. I had no experience in even interviewing people. I didn't know how to behave, and I had no idea about ethnographic methods because I, I come from a peace and conflict studies uh, background, completely applied uh, um, research, etc. So the first thing I thought was like, I'm not a white Turk. I come from uh, a small city in Turkey. White Turks never accept me to their club anyways. So, you know, I, I just uh, come from a small city. I didn't have the privilege that white Turks had. And, you know, I lost my home at an earthquake. I lived in a tent for two years before I went to university. I'm not that person you had in mind. But the fieldwork taught me so many things. And uh, uh, it, it taught me that privilege is not uh, just about uh, which college you went to and, you know, uh, whether you were middle class or upper middle class, etc. Privilege was something else. The fieldwork showed me that my biggest privilege was actually me not knowing anything about the Kurdish question until I was 23. This was my privilege, living in, in the western part of Turkey, completely away from what was happening at the other side of the country, and it was my luxury to switch off when I wanted. Um, the fieldwork also uh, sh uh, learned, um, taught me a lot of things. Uh, the hardest part was to unlearn what I've learned for, the, for many years in my life because I was the perfect product of the Turkish Republic. And by the perfect product, I mean in a small city, I went to Quran courses in the morning, and after the mosque, I, I, I went back home and, uh, and learned songs about Ataturk, and they were not clashing, they were totally <coughs> fine together. And uh, I would uh, consider myself a secular Turk, I had the secular reflex, uh, and if, if we were against one thing, it was political Islam, for example. So I really absorbed all the things that were taught to me because uh, I was born in the 80s. So my encounter with, with, with the Kurds in, in the diaspora uh, forced me to unlearn so much stuff. And it's not an easy process. And, um, so, and, uh, but I, I, I felt like um, it would be a failure to talk about these things. I didn't know whether I could bring it up. I just thought that it was only happening to me. And uh, we really had to find friends uh, who you could really trust to, to share these ideas. You know, I also feel that way. You know, it's not that easy either. And we can't just talk about our, you know, uh, oh, we, how many chapters you have written for your thesis. It was something different. It needed really uh, some um, comfort zone to talk about these things. But I realized I was putting also so much emotional labor in my, in my fieldwork at that time. So there was the white Turk image, and then there was the other image, which was the clueless little girl. 
So uh, the interviewees also treated me like I don't know anything about the issue that I'm researching and that they can teach me uh, everything that I need to know about this process. Um, and then, of course, there were other shades in between. So I have been put in different categories at different times. Uh, but one funny aspect, I think, is that, uh, which I think Marie never experienced, my Finnish uh, colleague, um, I had to constantly find a, a valid excuse why I'm doing this, why I'm doing this research. And most of the time, the easiest way for people to, um, to, to legitimize my interest in Kurdish studies was that I should have a Kurdish boyfriend. So this was asked to me during the different times of my fieldwork, including my, uh, by my parents, who were constantly questioning, it's okay for us, but tell us, you know, where is this sudden interest coming from? And it, it even happened in Hevlar when I interviewed the minister. Uh, the first thing he asked me was, so who is the lucky Kurdish guy uh, at the beginning of our interview? So, you know, the only way I could justify my legitimate interest in this area was to have a Kurdish boyfriend who could, you know, explain the whole thing, because otherwise why a Turk would be interested in this thing. So there was also a lot of gender-related issues. But at that time, during the course of the fieldwork, I had no idea about these things. I was just trying to finish my PhD, and I was really focused on that. I didn't want to lose the scholarship. So I just uh, found confidence in maybe talking to Professor Sirkeji at that time. And, and then he, he told me these things are completely normal. But I remember um, around the third year, I started experiencing secondary trauma. And uh, this was when I was interviewing people who were tortured in uh, the Arbukir prison. And uh, because my research was on exiles and uh, because I never actually met anybody who was tortured and you know, who, who had been through these things, I started feeling secondary trauma. But I only learned that this was actually a thing after five years I finished my PhD. So uh, I, I, I just wrote an email to my supervisor, for example. I told him, I feel that I'm becoming more and more pro-Kurdish. I'm losing my objectivity. I think I should come back to Florence and uh, you know, give a break. And at that time, I was so naive to think that you can be objective <laughs> in your studies, which is not true. Um, so this is very much um, what I shared with Marie. And then we decided to write an article together comparing our experiences. And it's published in Ethnic and Racial Studies. Um, and the title was Politicized Ethnicities. And uh, this was uh, a brave step for both of us, because at this level of our career, actually, you know, people don't want to talk about these things, as I told you. Uh, the, the literature is changing, for example. My colleague, uh, Eli Haraval, a geographer from Coventry, just recently published an article on how we should uh, accept our failures as part of research. And, and then we started writing about these things. So the book, the idea for the book came, uh, came out around two, three years ago, uh, when I actually, you know, it's been now 10 years uh, uh, since I did my fieldwork. And uh, I started, you know, advancing in my career. I started having PhD students. I started teaching qualitative methods to PhD students uh, at Coventry University. And then I, I started thinking about my own experience again and again and reflecting on it. And uh, I noticed that especially in the UK context, when we talk about methodology, the, the students are fixated at uh, ethics application. So when you talk about positionality, reflexivity, insider-outsider, the only thing they, they care about is uh, past the ethics process, and there, 
uh, what you really need to show is that uh, you will keep the interviews confidential, you will respect anonymity, perfect. And uh, you will respect anonymity and then um, you, you just need to basically um, pass the ethics. And if you, if you have a critical view about it, it's all about protecting the institution from getting sued <laughs> rather than your own, uh, you know, uh, understanding <coughs> of power relations in the field, etc. It's just basically just left anthropology, not to what we're doing in political science and IR. And uh, we wanted to change that. So with this book, we wanted to show that uh, um, fieldwork is not just about going to conflict zones and taking security precautions and having an app on your phone, I'm safe button, etc. It's more than that. It's, it's thinking about power relations. It's thinking about how the fieldwork changes you. And it's, it's uh, first of all, it's, it's about understanding yourself. Because once you understand where you are, your own positionality, your own baggage that you bring to your study, then you can understand the, the uh, politics of producing knowledge. So this could be Curtis studies, this could be any other studies that we're talking about. But uh, all, our, all we wanted in this book was to take the Curtis studies out of the security studies box and uh, this, uh, you know, disseminate this insider-outsider discussion to a larger literature outside anthropology. And we found honest people who wanted to talk about their experience. So uh, they'll present their work here. Thank you so much. Um, would like to go next. We didn't discuss it before, so <laughs> such a good chair, isn't it? Yes. Um, so do you want to go? <laughs> yes, okay. yes. So I will kind of build on what Bahar has said and maybe kind of elaborate on the um, chapters too. So I think it's unfortunate that so few of the authors are here today because each of them has a really unique perspective they uh, came, they presented in the book. Um, and they were quite uh, critical and reflexive in their approach. Um, so I just wanted to discuss some of the trends in the research process, uh, in the research ethics literature that has been emerging, that Bahar has uh, kind of a bit touched upon, and also some of the themes that emerged in the book. So I will kind of briefly, because I'm a PhD student as well, and I'm sure that there's some PhD students here, the ethics application process could be um, kind of um, rigid, and it's really kind of focused on the safety of the researcher and the researched, and how we protect our data in the field. And it really corresponds to this list of uh, countries that are blacklisted in the home office uh, list. But don't... The, but when you're uh, kind of uh, utilizing these forms, you don't really have someone that is checking for the context or the country that you're going to, but there's usually these kind of stand, uh, standards um, that you have to comply with. And in these forms, there's usually uh, kind of rules of participation, data laws, uh, how to uh, store our work, which cloud to use, how to keep it safe and also how the outcomes will be shared. And as Bahar underlined, there's not a lot of uh, kind of um, these uh, forms are usually are made for the academic institutions. They're compulsory. And a successful approval process eventually leads to this creation of a document which will be given to the research outlining the rights he or she has in the process of data collection. 
and that's it usually. So, but is this kind of sufficient to understand the ethical issues of conducting research? Uh, so that was one of the themes that emerged in the book as well. And this literature has been criticizing this process as it has been seen as quite bureaucratized and it's not really equipped to relate to the dynamics of the field as the field is quite dynamic. And also, on the other hand, this incorporation of reflections on the process of knowledge production and how positionality affects the research have been also increasingly studied, uh, probably in the last 15, 20 years. And so those kind of who underline that come up to the point of uh, advocating a reflexive methodology. And they underline that there's no unitary rule of, uh, over the practice, and they explore in every research how uh, a new dynamic is uh, kind of uh, emerging. So they're kind of increasingly uh, been asking these questions. So there's a lot of emphasis on meaning. What is the meaning of the research? Why do we conduct it? Who will benefit from this research? Or how can this research be interpreted by regimes used against the researchers? Um, how does our identity shape the process? And as also Bahar has mentioned, how do we account for power structures that shape available knowledge and how we maybe compensate for that? So this book, again, is situated in these efforts uh, and reflects on these questions. Um, and, uh, so, and this is the field where kind of uh, reflexivity emerges. And when I was uh, kind of looking at this process, I was quite inspired by uh, some of some scholars, and one of them was uh, Douglas Izzy. And he said that we should not really disregard the role of emotions uh, in the process of research. And it's true that emotions shape how we understand the world. Uh, and as he states, uh, we actively construct meanings, uh, deconstruct them and co-construct them. It's always in motion. It's always relational. And it is, and uh, there's a process of uh, emotional interdependence between the researcher and the research. Then, how shall we account for emotions? I do agree again with Bahar that we cannot be objective, um, and that interpretive research should be aware of this process. So we should be aware of our of our emotions and how it affects the uh, research process. And uh, then what about power relations between the researcher and the research? So, um, so there's not a lot of literature that I saw, but Jessica ben Benjamin has written about this, about how the structures of this emotional relationship can lead to domination and depersonalization in uh, the side of the researcher. So the researcher might have some hegemony or kind of power over the research. And this is because uh, uh, he or she has the power to write about um, that other person. And so what shall we uh, done? How can we kind of move away from this kind of dominant hegemonic structure to a more kind of uh, e equal relationship? So uh, this, that's why I kind of like the work of Izzy, because he recommends that we should not forget, forget that we are mutually dependent on each other. Uh, and that we should kind of uh, have this process of communion rather than conquesting. So usually um, when we're trying to find uh, interviewers, uh, people who are willing to uh, have interviews, we kind of see it as a conquest. Okay, yes, I've got one interviewee, that's great. But then uh, it is not kind of conquesting or kind of um, 
kind of uh, dominantly uh, describing someone, but then kind of creating this process where there's a dialogue between the researcher and the research. And that could also affect how conclusions are made and how the uh, research could be of benefit as well. Uh, and also one of the commonalities in the chapters was that many authors have made uh, a case against essentialism, which I think uh, was quite important, rejecting this fixed perception of positionality. So be like gender mattered, but also ideology mattered as well. So which political party do you support, uh, do you belong to? So that might have mattered more than ethnicity uh, and the closeness or remote, uh, remoteness from the interviewee. And also, on the other hand, the chapters in this volume warned uh, against uh, reproduction of discrimination systems that are internalized in society. So I was quite, um, Demet Arpajuk in her chapter has underlined and came up with this concept of epistemological injustice as the categories that researchers use may be shaped by the status quo uh, and the lack of alternative framing. So there might be dominant framing that we might be not really accounting for. Uh, and also, uh, especially, uh, so I've worked as a journalist for a short time, but then um, there was a question in Turkey about how, how to access data. And uh, especially in kind of um, non-democratic context, the state can also become the sole controlling body for knowledge production. Uh, and that is problematic as well. So how do we, not only how we conduct our interviews, but where do we get our research from? And how we kind of think about that is important in kind of being reflexive in our research too. So I will, uh, so there's quite important other points uh, uh, chap on cha uh, about the chapters as well. So some of the authors have wrote about being how being an outsider differed when they were from a community that's, that was seen to be in solidarity with the research community. So those dynamics really matter. And if you have further questions, we can kind of uh, elaborate on the uh, chapters as well. Uh, so maybe to end and to pass on to the contributors, I would say that I would really recommend uh, this uh, book to PhD students because uh, in our office we have been discussing uh, like the we are reading textbooks on methodology, qualitative met methodology, and we're kind of saying this doesn't really work. So we have to come up with our own models. And while we write and while we research, we kind of we edit our methodology section over and over again. Uh, so I was quite uh, happy to be an editor of this book, uh, and it has provided me a. Pro uh, it has created a process of learning for me as well, and I uh, kind of learned a lot from these reflections. And I'm looking forward to listening to you and answering your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Begum. So shall we go sure. while we are yeah. at that side of the table? Sure. Um, all right, so so I'll say a few words just to uh, contextualize my chapter and then uh, also make a few of the, just go over some of the points that I uh, I made uh, within it as well. So uh, so I have a um, background mostly in uh, sort of international relations and uh, international history, and for the last few years I've mostly been carrying out research on the sort of the the process of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire especially and the emergence of 
uh, sort of different successor states. So that process um, sort of culminating around sort of the uh, First World War and then the uh, emergence of different uh, efforts on the part of uh, sort of political uh, or sort of social, so just elites and different movements within that geography to gain some sort of uh, recognition of their uh, sovereignty within that sort of period from about 1908 to uh, maybe sort of the early 1920s. So my encounter with um, a lot of uh, uh, material that, um, so a lot of the sort of material that would fall under the scope of uh, Kurdish studies really uh, coincided with my archival research um, on that specific period uh, in uh, in the UK, actually, so in the National Archives here in the UK. Uh, so I'll now just sort of move on to say a few words about um, about my chapter, which was about uh, essentially about archival, uh, so sort of historical research, and um, linking that to a lot of the questions we've, a lot of the issues we've just sort of mentioned now about reflexivity and the um, positionality and so on. So the main point I really wanted to make in writing the chapter was to draw attention to the role of state power in two different sort of um, senses. So first of all, the role of state power in shaping the actual sort of historical information that we have available. And secondly, how it can shape um, the, uh, the accounts of, of history that we engage in, sort of when we look back and try and uh, you know, piece together a narrative and a, sort of an analysis of what happened. So uh, obviously the state in the um, context that I'm, I'm looking at, I mean, you know, it could be, could include the actual sort of, um, I mean, on the one hand, obviously in the period that I'm looking at, you know, there's sort of empires, but there are also nation states that are emerging in this context as well. So by the state, I mean, you know, both of these quite, quite different, but in, in many ways sort of interlinked uh, units that were emerging in sort of international society and international uh, order at this um, sort of time period. And um, by the archive, I mean, I, I, first of all, I do actually mean what's sort of traditionally taken to be the archive, so the, the sort of state uh, kind of, um, you know, the sort of repositories of the sort of information, the official records of states, but also... I think we can also think about the archives in a separate sense as well, in the sense that you know these are any sort of uh, collection of information. I mean, it can be a non-state form as well. It can, it can even be sort of forms of, of you know, music or, or sort of oral history and so on. I mean, this could also, in a sense, be uh, considered uh, an archive uh, as well, as some uh, sort of post-structuralists have also uh, suggested, you know, this idea of expanding our... Uh, notion of what we take to be um, the archive. And a lot of what I suggest also builds on this idea that what we take to be history and theory are also in many ways interlinked. I mean, uh, for a start, there's the issue of, you know, which sources uh, do we prioritize? Which sources do we kind of, uh, which sources do we take to be significant in answering the, you know, the original question that we approach um, the um, the archives with, and of course, how do we, how does the uh, the material that we encounter then subsequently shape our, you know, our assumptions uh, that we may be 
uh, originally happened to hold about a certain historical event or period and, and etc and how how the sort of process of historical research can actually aid in developing and sort of further refining our uh, theories in um, sort of from a more social scientific uh, perspective uh, as well uh, and, and of course the more we look at uh, history the more we also become aware of a lot of the um, I mean, some of the power relations uh, that we just sort of, uh, that, that the previous speakers also mentioned, because of course there is, um, you know, the, especially in the context of my own research, the sort of First World War is a sort of real turning point in the, you know, the context of the emergence of the global uh, international system, international order as we know it today, and then there's the um, legacy of uh, sort of colonialism and modernity, and however we uh, define these sort of aspects and uh, and these phenomena and how they happen to shape the, um, <coughs> what's available to us as well. So in that sense, there is a sort of um, a, a sense in which you know history and theory can can together help us to develop a more um, comprehensive, sort of extensive understanding of uh, also the questions that we pose uh, when we enter into the archive and when we engage in. Uh, historical research. So, I just just also like to point point out that um, a lot of the uh, research and uh, sort of subaltern studies, I think, also is particularly uh, useful in this regard as well. Especially the idea that there are separate sort of archives uh, because there are, of course, separate versions of history. So, the uh, a key work in this regard that really uh, sort of uh, made me aware of this, and I, I think it sort of was formulated in a um, really sort of convincing and, and convincing way. Would, would be, um, I mean, Ranajit Guha's uh, uh, elementary aspects of peasant insurgency in colonial India, where there is this very much this emphasis on different archives, the different archive, the separate archives of of those who were uh, rebelling and the uh, those who happened to hold uh, power in that context. So, so, I, so in the chapter, I. I'm suggesting that this could be um, a way in which you know we can sort of approach the sort of broad, broader kind of history of this particular uh, context, of this particular geography, and also of, uh, of Kurdish sort of history, global history, and um, and so here I I'll move on to my another point that I made, which was um, and how do state how does state power and sort of archives how do they happen to interact with each other so here um, in the context of uh, of a lot of the uh, the research I did I was sort of mindful of I mean the fact that the archive itself is also not a neutral space I mean if we're looking at the archives in uh, in the UK they are pretty much the, the sort of the imperial uh, archive and you know we could say the same about the, the French archives or the, the Russian sort of Soviet archives, as I mentioned as well, and of course there are different ways uh, um, ways of approaching this challenge. I mean, the first possibility is just to to engage in a critique of this practice as well. I mean, you know, just to to undermine, you know, to, to suggest that you know because these archives aren't neutral, they are in fact sort of reinforcing sort of existing uh, power relations or sort of Orientalism. And of course, as um, um, sort of Maktisi and Deringil have suggested, there is also this phenomenon of Ottoman Orientalism as well, which was um, 
um, occurring uh, in the period that I was looking at. So a lot of the sources uh, with regards to that and the sort of the, um, the Ottoman states uh, projects towards the, uh, you know, the eastern provinces or the Kurdish uh, uh, populated areas were also, um, uh, you know, these sort of power relations were also present in that context as well. But I, but I suggest in the, um, uh, in the chapter that we can also look at archives from a, uh, an ethnographic stance as well. So we can be mindful of the fact that these, um, uh, that, that they're not really, um, you know, neutral, um, that the way the information is presented may not be neutral and it may be from a specific uh, point of view. Um, but even within that, so for example, if we're looking at the, um, um, the air ministries or the RAF's um, sort of archives, this was a, uh, an example that, um, that came up in the, the context of the um, uh, sort of the Sheikh Saeed uh, sort of uprising. There is a sort of a, uh, a spike in the amount of data that emerges round about that period. So in that sense, even if we're looking at uh, an imperial, what is actually an imperial archive, the sort of fluctuations within that in terms of the amount of information that uh, emerges can actually point to what some of the other uh, actors in that context were uh, were doing. And on that point, I think I'll uh, get the clue. Thank I'm, you very yeah, much. That's very interesting. And over here. Brilliant. So thanks a lot uh, for uh, the panel and inviting me, and obviously to be part of the book was wonderful, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and thanks a million for everyone to coming on a cold evening. Um, uh, as Bahar said at the start, it was a big relief uh, when you read some of these other chapters that people have the same problems or similar problems, and this classic, uh, as you said, Begum, this classic literature on qualitative analysis, the methods that you read in your first year of your PhD are... I, mean, I wouldn't say they're useless, but they're not very relevant for this type of research. And it's reassuring to know that this type of uh, research on field research that isn't necessarily anthropological or ethnographic, but this kind of field research we said is covered in the book, that it also exists out there and is becoming more public, let's say, with these type of publications. So I wrote this chapter with my very good friend, former housemate, five-a-side player, buddies for a long time, Simi Celik. Uh, and he's unfortunately not here today. Uh, um, it was part of my PhD. It was a part of my fieldwork for my PhD. Uh, I did my research was on and continues to be on the relationship between armed movements and their supporters. How it's realized. How do you approach supporters? How do you lose supporters? How do you maintain your support networks? And my case study was on because I lived in Germany or uh, my wife is German. I was living in Germany. Got to know Kurdish friends, and through this, I got interested in the Kurdish movement. And that's what my PhD was on. The period of fieldwork I did was in 2012, uh, and it was the only period I did directly in Kurdistan, but the rest of my research I did in Germany, pre predominantly, and also in western parts of Turkey. Uh, and as this re research was on our movements and their supporters, we interviewed current and former members of the armed movement, plus uh, people on the fringes of the movement. So we had a kind of a broader spectrum of people who we talked to. Uh, and before we went, as you can see, I'm, I sound like I'm from Ireland, I look like I'm from Ireland, and myself and Simi, who's a Turk from Istanbul, we had this notion, exactly this outsider, insider, when you go there, people are going to look at you because you're obviously not Kurdish, or you couldn't even potentially be Kurdish, but once we arrived there, to our big surprise, Simi apparently looked at the time, or probably still does, like a Fenerbahce football player called Christian Baroni. So when we went to Kurdistan, 
Nobody cared about me. It was all children chasing around after him, shouting Baroni, Baroni. So this very this notion of who's more foreign, who's less foreign is all very it's much more dynamic than you might think. Uh, so I don't speak Turkish and I don't speak Kurmanji or any other Kurdish languages. And to be one hundred percent clear, that is a huge disadvantage. There's that's a disadvantage and there's no way getting around it. Uh, and every advantage I found of the way I did my research was could also be done if I spoke Turkish. I could have also have done this period of fieldwork with a friend who's well involved in politics and so on. But I think the main point, and I think this literature that's emerging, is that all fieldwork is imperfect. And these stylized versions of fieldwork that you read in publications are mostly very stylized. This isn't the way fieldwork is done in reality. So what the main point was that uh, being a foreigner, being in a group, to have two of us together, had certain advantages. And I mentioned some of these type of advantages that we had. So, uh, and I'm a firm believer that all knowledge is cumulatively built. I mean, it might be my name or your name or whoever's name on the publication, but this is a, a social process that goes far beyond us. And then we get the modest glory of having our names on it. But this is a, social, a process of cumulative knowledge building. So in uh, Kurdistan, we couldn't uh, record our interviews. Nobody allowed us to record the interviews which is perfectly understandable, which was different than most cases in Germany, most in, um, in, um, in Western cities in Turkey. Uh, so having two people there. So the interviews worked essentially. We'd do our interviews. Uh, Sami would ask the questions. He'd take notes, summarize it to me. I'd respond. So it's, it was a circular process. It was a slow process. And our interviews lasted much longer than if I could speak directly in Kurmanji or uh, in Turkish. But this, in a way, had a very practical advantage, because if you can't record it, we had literally had two series of notes. When we'd get back to the hotel, because we had, like, I mean, at the time, it was 2012, uh, so it was just when things had settled down a little bit, but it was, there was still fighting going on, not necessarily where we were. But, uh, so we were quite prompt to like, type up our notes uh, uh, and then get rid of any kind of paper evidence that we had. So what would happen is I'd, I'd have typed up my notes, and me would type up, uh, summarize his notes, we'd type them together and double check what we were doing. So we had a kind of a, a counterbalance to any misunderstandings. And the main advantage is that this was a very much a, a, a joint uh, production of meaning. So if you can imagine, I mean, a lot, it's a kind of a little bit of a ridiculous scenario. So you talk to these people that live in villages, these people not, aren't intellectuals or whatever. This people asking these, me asking them questions that they found ridiculous. And then with three people, there was, it was a lot of over and back and chatting. Then they'd talk this to me and I'd them specifically translate this. What's he writing down now? Why isn't he writing something down? So we had this kind of over and back and kind of double checking. So it was much more, at least in my interpretation, in my recollection, than to me, a much more collective type of process than if I just interviewed, go home, take, write down the notes, and that's it. Uh, uh, oh, and the main point that I forgot is that of course there's an issue. This national identity, this cleavage is important. If you're Turkish or if you're Kurdish or if you're whatever you have. But as an Irish person, uh, I had a, a huge advantage. The minute I went there, they, the first thing there were all these jokes. Oh, another terrorist like ourselves, this type of ha, ha, ha. You know what I mean? Uh, and then all devastated when they heard I wasn't from the six counties in the north of Ireland. Uh, that it wasn't in the IRA, they were also a bit disappointed at that. But then when you discuss the politics, so when all these interviews would start, uh, and not necessarily with people, say, for farmers from villages, but people involved in the movement, the interview started with an interview of me, of my political views on what's going on in Northern Ireland, what does Northern Ireland mean for Kurdistan, what do I think of Kurdistan. So it started off in that sense. So this was a huge advantage. Uh, 
and it opened a lot of doors and it, I could have even taken more advantage of it. Uh, but anyway, to get back to the interview process, uh, doing team research, I mean, it's obviously impossible. Most people in their PhDs, they can't do field research with somebody. You don't, you don't have money. Simi uh, was a politically motivated guy to do it, had lots and lots of very good friends and contacts in the region, so we went there. But it has a lot of easiness. Most field research involves unbelievable amount of waiting around, being bored, drinking tea, waiting for people to call you back, to forget to call you back. So it's, it's, you're in a team, so it's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, it makes things a lot easier. Uh, and in a kind of very PKK style, we had this self-critical approach. So after an interview, we'd all say, what did we do wrong here? You said that. Why did you say that? Why did he leave the room at that point? So we learned from each other. We learned what mistakes we made. So it's a huge advantage, but obviously not one that we can all use, but it made a lot of sense. Uh, and as I say, so this outsiderness, I mean, these are some brief lessons of what we learned. I mean, people here have done much better and more extensive fieldwork than me, but these are some of the experiences that myself and Sumi found. So I agree very much with this notion that insider outsiderness is much more dynamic than you might think. For example, uh, I'm from a, a, a rural background, I'm from a farming family, and when you meet... I, 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 I wouldn't like to present myself, John, my, my own family would laugh at me if I presented myself as like a farming expert, but I know enough small talk about cows and sheep to talk to people from villages and ask them specific things. And this type of, it's, a, it's not a serious thing, but it's a temporal kind of bridging of solidarities. So me is, is a Turkish guy, but he's someone who works in the Ottoman archives and is, knows, a, and people are interested in these things. So they, would, like, they talked about his historical stuff. One guy wanted to know about his Armenian grandmother and where Sami could help him find this. So you have these multiple types of identities and the kind of po points of connection that are much, I'm not going to say much more important, but they, they are contribute to this broader nexus of interaction with people. And uh, for us, we were two men as well. So we interviewed very few women. For sure, if we were women, it would have been very different. So gender, I think, is a big dy dynamic. And as men, I mean, it's important to recognize that as well. For example, we had, uh, like, you have very different accounts of what type of tortures happened and so on, that maybe as your male gender, what's shared and not shared is different to what if you were a female researcher. Uh, the other point is that you, when you go to a specific city, even a big city like the Arbaker, people, you, you have your contacts, people you know, and you're in a way also, and correctly so, being assessed. So they want to know what type of questions he's asking. What kind of, is he asking correct questions? Is he being annoying? So you're essentially on, no, I won't say on trial, but like on, you know, you're being, the people are keeping an eye on you. And then you find out when you do an interview, you're going, oh, I talked to this other guy, and he said this and that. So it's something you have to keep in mind, that you have to be very, uh, I mean, you just have to be aware that you are also being, uh, uh, your behavior is under the spotlight as well. A main point, and this is kind of a pious and a bit sanctimonious thing to say, but it is true what Begum said. You do get this notion of like interviews are like a conquest. I interviewed this guy, he's a gorilla, this guy's this, this guy's in this village. And I mean, there's this, it's a very basic thing. Like, don't, you have to treat people with a degree of empathy and just be, because you, I, I knew people who had lots of things that I know that they happened in their life from the, you know, in the, the mountains for this time, in prison at this specific time, in this specific battle, and they didn't want to talk about it. And I mean, you can't force people to talk about these things. And it's important to recognize that a lot of talking about the Arbacore prison in the 80s, this is traumatic and you have to be respectful. And I mean, that seems like common sense, but I mean, you hear enough stories from people that you interview as well. They say, oh, I met this guy from wherever. And he was really, and they'll tell you about it as well. Um, so as I said, patience and empathy is very important. And that your uh, reputation spreads and it goes back to Germany and so on. It's quite clear. So you have to be, 
you know, aware of that as well. Uh, some technical issues. Uh, a lot of this I retrospectively dis discovered in the literature, which I should have done during my PhD, but I didn't. Simple things like why questions are a disaster, especially my research is about the 70s and 80s and 90s. If you ask someone why they did something in 1979, they will give you the answer of today reinterpreted. So the much more specific questions are how. How did you do it? What ha on, on what occasion? When you're doing historical interviews, I mean, if you ask yourself what happened 10 years ago, if you think about yourself, it's hard. So you have to help people in the sense. You have to say, oh, the cool, like what happened with the... Uh, your memories of that period, like when did soldiers come to your village? What, do you remember? So if their village was evacuated, what, you know, you can, you can structure your questions in a way that facilitate uh, memory. We found that as outsiders, and it depended as well on the people you're interviewing, people who are more, you know, every normal jobs are people who are more political. Uh, a good way is to get the people talking. You know, I mean, don't start with the hard questions of, you know, tell us about this, this or project. But it's kind of, oh, it's just small talk. Get people talking about their family, where they're from, small talks like that. It's, it kind of creates a, an easiness. Uh, and it takes away this kind of interrogation style and uh, narration, just kind of interrogation, let's say, of the, uh, of the person. Uh, your data, it's an ongoing process. The data that you have, you're going to use it, you're going to reuse it, you're going to code it, recode it. I had the glorious luxury of having my friend see me that now still, when I'm going through the data, I call him up and I'm going, do you remember this guy? And then, well, I mean, that's not what everyone has, but I have that look. Uh, as I said, no research is, qualitative research in conflict zones or in post-conflict zones is, uh, it's never perfect, but I think as uh, James Khalil, who works on radicalization, has said, you just need to be transparent about it. You've said, these are people I interviewed, that's why I interviewed them. And I mean, to be honest, my PhD wasn't very transparent about it, but now I have, you know, there is a value to being much more transparent about it. Uh, uh, then there's some small things I'll go through super quick. We learned very simple things that seem obvious. Uh, I mean. Never say PKK, whatever, like Kurdish movement, you can use, if using the term PKK got us into some troubles at the start, which we quickly learned. Uh, you got, we were super paranoid. I've loads of kind of, I find it semi-amusing with retrospect anecdotes about being paranoid. So you have to accept that you will be a bit paranoid and a bit tense. And at times we were a bit too cautious. We should have done more things. We should have accepted more invitations, but it is an aspect of it. And this is a very important one. And there's a whole special issue in civil wars on it in the last while, on your gatekeepers. So our gatekeepers, we all rely on gatekeepers, whether we're Kurdish, Turkish, Irish, whatever, but they're not there just as a bridge to, to help you get data, but they, you're associated with them. So your family, if you come with this guy from this family, you, you're affiliated in a way, in a local sense. So your gatekeeper will open some doors, but you have to be aware that they're going to close other doors with other people. So it's something that we learned as well over time there. Uh, Oh, flexibility, uh, this notion that you can research your interview before, you know, when you do your seminars in your first year of PhD, it's this what happened, uh, prepare your questionnaire of your 10 questions. We interviewed people, we had no idea who they were until they sat down in front of us. Uh, and, I mean, as I said, it was a pleasure to do this research with me and with the research I did in Germany with my Kurdish friends, uh, most, they were, who were mostly Kurdish. Uh, but that, that was a massive help and it's part of the, uh, attenuates a little bit the social stress of it. And uh, the other thing is that it's this do no harm thing is super important. And I think we all get carried away and think our PhD or our books or our articles are the most important thing in the world, but they really aren't. And sometimes in the field, we can forget that. So it's important to remember that no one's PhD, no one's article or book will change. Well, it's much more important just to be sound to the people that you're interacting and dealing with there. So that was just some of our experiences. And uh, thanks for your attention. And that was great. look Thank for the you. questions.
fantastic presentations, loads of ideas, different types of methods. So I'm sure you all have questions as well, uh, or some of you. Um, so I'll just open it for discussion. Please introduce yourselves before you ask your question. And we have a microphone. Wait for the microphone. Uh, the, uh, this is, um, the event is being recorded and it will be available on the podcast later on. And if you would like to tweet, uh, sorry, I forgot to say that. Uh, it's hashtag LSE Kurtz. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, thank you. My name is Gareth Winrow. I'm currently uh, in Oxford University, the Department of Continuing Education. Um, my question maybe is related directly to Baha, although we did hear quite a bit of it from Francis in, in, his, in his presentation. I'm still trying to grasp uh, the significance or importance of this inside-outsider distinction for your work. To my shame, I've not read the whole book. I've got the book, I've dipped into it, but I've not uh, read it in detail. So um, are you all outsiders? Do, are, you, are you different shades of outsiders? Have you got some insiders contributing? Are you saying that an insider then is a somebody from a Kurdish village, so you're all automatically outsiders? Is it bad to be an outsider? Is it good to be sort of semi-inside, semi-outside? Um, you know, the relevance of this, the importance of this, um, I mean, we've heard that maybe from Francis, the good parts of being an outsider sometimes. Uh, and people are maybe be more willing to open up or be more frank, or maybe the opposite. Maybe they think you're sort of outside foreign intelligence or something. I don't know. So, you know, the relevance of this, if you could just tease it out a little bit more. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Let's take one more question. I'd give three questions and then come back to the panel. Thank you very much. My name is Vesey. I'm a research uh, fellow, a postdoctoral research fellow at SOAS. I've got two questions, I mean, to Bahar and other, to other colleagues. And the first question is actually, as you know, before I rise, uh, ask the question, that the Kurdish studies actually uh, unfortunately restricted to uh, refugee, to war, to conflict, to violence, to statelessness, and that means actually it uh, opened the question to vulnerability that the Kurdish community is highly vulnerable <coughs> community, heterogeneous community. So in order to, I think, in order to work on this community, it's very important uh, to, to specify the ethic. Ethic issue is very important. So, uh, and language issue. As you mentioned, you indicated that the first question is uh, related to ethic and ethic. Like, uh, if you, like as Turkish scholar, uh, to, I mean, uh, as Turkish citizen or Turkish, like working on the Kurdish, uh, uh, question, Kurdish people, Kurdish diaspora, whatever. I mean, it is some, it, 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 I think it raises a lot of issues. Uh, I think, I mean, it, it, uh, it raises a lot of uh, issues of ethics. So, and how did you manage actually your, your, this issue, like to be more ethic in the sense that you consider, so not, not be biased and be more objective, like it is enough that you maybe, because you mentioned that you had a Kurdish boyfriend. And was he like, or something like? Or she okay. didn't. Okay, no, like, no, not you, Kurdish boyfriend, but uh -huh. like through the Kurdish boyfriend, you may get more inside access to the Kurdish community through the perspective of one person, like in that sense. Yeah. Great. Second, Thank you. Can we please keep our questions yeah, short second, because we don't yeah, have uh, much time, and I'm sure there's also oh, one. Sorry. And the second question actually relates to language because the language, for if, especially if you conduct the ethnographic field work and anthropological studies, the language is precondition. It's crucial, and not just the one language like Kurdish has different dialects and uh, different accents even, and uh, the Kurdish as kind of tool of data collection and data analysis. How did you manage, I mean, to understand the people and the people that 
community uh, actually express themselves, not just because of language, but also because of this kind of oppression, colonization that they went through and that they have difficulties to express their feelings. So I just give one example and then I finish. I had recently completed my fieldwork in Germany and had the German friend, German colleague with me. And when I interviewed the Kurdish scholar, uh, sorry, Kurdish refugees, they mentioned different things because of the German colleagues. They were they worried a bit. They were, I mean, careful. But when she left, then it was much different. And this affect actually also not just the data collection, but also data. I would say uh, production. I mean, knowledge production. And how did you manage when you don't speak the Kurdish language? Thank you. Thank you. And one final question, ideally a short one, please. Yes. Thank you. It's coming. I mean, it's because it's being recorded, so yeah, yeah, you need the microphone. Yes, yes. Thank you. This was such a breath of fresh air, especially after undergoing ethics training yesterday, which was very clinical. Um, so um, I was reading, so I haven't read the book. Um, but this sounds amazing, so I will dig into it. Uh, but I have a question to your definition or even thinking of the field in, in the title and then also in, in the contributions. Where do you draw the line where the field is? Because um, a lot of literature teaches us that we need to find a place to stand in the field, but also related in the text and then in academia. And then my question to, I guess, all of you, because you have come from different backgrounds, whether your ability to know within academia, especially within Global North academia, has been challenged on the basis where you come from, whether your potential bias has been challenged. And I think we might find a diversity. I mean, being a Balkan person studying the Balkans, I have often been uh, asked what, what my bias is, assuming others <coughs> don't have a bias. Um, and the second one is um, prompted by something that Francis said, how no knowledge belongs to only one person, which I appreciate as an intervention. Uh, but I wonder whether you struggled with the ethical question of uh, knowledge extraction and how, uh, how, you know, moving this do no harm beyond just not harming people. Um, how can we intellectually and not in terms of knowledge production acknowledge the people we interview and talk to as knowledge producers in their own right? Thank you. And who are you? Oh, sorry. I'm Elena Stavrovska. I work at the Center uh, for Women, Peace, and Security. Thank you. Yes. All right. I know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. So, any takers? Three questions. Shall we start with the outsider insider distinction? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for the, for the question. It will actually help me um, talk more about uh, the rationale of the book. And short answer. Yes. Um, so basically, there was this divide outside the researcher, inside the researcher. So outsider is the local, um, which who belongs to this ethnic or religious community. So they were supposed to know better what's going on there. But at the same time, they were always accused of being biased because they will always take sides if it's a conflict, if it's uh, uh, any other situation. So uh, and the and the neutral outsider was there to rescue the situation because they had no interests in the in the whole thing so actually an outsider could evaluate the situation much better and write uh, more distanced articles but at the same time outsider wouldn't have the cultural knowledge uh, that an insider would have so they would they wouldn't really understand the cultural code so that was the main discussion for a long time but it has changed recently and uh, now it's getting more and more complex for example I'm sure this is like valid for practical reasons I'm sure it was harder for Marie to adapt to Middle Eastern culture than than I had I knew what to wear I know I knew how to sit and things like that maybe she had to do more observations but at the same time um, when it comes to 
defining is it good, is it bad. Um, I would say there is no such thing anymore because we're all hybrid outsiders, insiders. It's just there are different moments. And uh, uh, um, so, for example, uh, Jorg and Carling uh, worked on this in migration studies and, and uh, with his colleagues. They came up with seven different definitions for different insider-outsider roles. So some people can be outsiders with insider knowledge, and some outsiders actually wouldn't even have a clue about their local culture. Um, so it's it's just you know I I for example do not consider myself as a Turkey studies scholar because I I did not study certain things systematically so it I don't automatically know everything about Turkey so I wouldn't I, I have insider knowledge to a certain extent but I don't consider myself as an expert and it could be the same for other insiders so um, but the the um, so connecting this to Vasi's uh, question, I actually did not have a Kurdish boyfriend. I actually ne uh, never had it during my fieldwork. But people attributed it to me, just to justify my interest in, in 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 this issue. Because then it would also ease their minds. Because then I could be maybe outsider with insider knowledge. Because you know my boyfriend would tell me. But it's not something that I could learn myself, and I could just have this awareness on my own as a woman. Uh, without getting involved romantically with somebody. And there was a lot of gender issues about that. When it comes to ethics, a very quick answer. So the, when it comes to ethics, I mean, if you're talking about like institutional approach to ethics, uh, I kept my uh, interviews in a locked uh, cupboard when I, I didn't take them with me to Turkey. You know, this is what they understand from ethics at, uh, at the institutions we work for. But I, I what I did... Um, as my own understanding of ethic, I tried to stay loyal to the testimonies I heard in the field. I did not interfere in people's narratives, and I tried to listen to everybody. So, for example, I interviewed people who sympathized with the PKK. I also talked to other people who sympathized with other movements, and I gave them equal balanced uh, space in my thesis. And I did the same for Turks because my PhD dealt with the relations between Turks and Kurds. I also interviewed equal number of Turks. And uh, so the Turks automatically thought I was an insider. There are a lot of issues there, but uh, I tried to just stay loyal to their narratives. And ethically, what I've done was, like, I never, ever claimed that I'm the voice of Kurdish people. Or I never, ever claimed in my writings that Kurdish people should do this, should do that. This was not my approach. I just wrote analytically about what I've seen. I used theories to explain what might be the situation. And... Uh, I, I just created a scholarly output. That was my ethical approach to the question. But if, if it comes to the emotional labor, of course, I wasn't where I started in the beginning. I ended up more pro-Kurdish than I was when I first started. And it also uh, brought other consequences, which I can elaborate on. When it comes to language, I'll leave the field question to you. When it comes to language, I actually uh, went to a Kurdish course for one year in Berlin. Um, I, my, my teacher was Evila Duresh, and uh, he was also a victim of uh, the Arbaker prison. So our relationship was really interesting for me because I couldn't con perceive him as my language teacher, but also he was my teacher for many other things. And uh, I can't uh, speak uh, properly, but at least I, I spent enough time. I think one year was a good time to to learn it. And now uh, our colleague, Ibrahim Malazada, who was just here, he had to leave. He is uh, teaching us uh, Sorani at uh, Coventry University. So at least we are doing our best to 
to have a minimum understanding of uh, what we are studying. But because I was working on the diaspora, uh, most of my interviews were in English, and I never forced my, my interviewees to speak in Turkish with me because they perceived it as the language of the colonizer, and I respected that, and I conducted my, most of my research in, in English. Thank you. Uh, I, I, well, two small brief uh, response to your questions. First thing is regarding the field, which I find is interesting. Sometimes there is this notion of the true field where you meet the true victims. M me interviewing uh, farmers in Marden who are from villages that had never been to Marden before they were forced out of their villages. So this isn't their natural environment, no more than being in Istanbul or in cities in the middle of Germany is. So this, I mean, there is, in a context of war, what's the field is a much more dynamic. So uh, there is no authentic field. Of course, it would be great if you could go, but I mean, the whole environment of Kurdistan has changed with the war. So especially when I'm trying to talk about what happened in the 80s, that doesn't exist anymore. So it's quite hard. The notion of knowledge extraction, I mean, I try to do it a lot. I try to acknowledge it, you know, the usual in your acknowledgements and so on. Um, but the uh, other point is that people, refu people who don't want to collaborate, they say no. I mean, I don't know how many times I've contact people or people are going, yeah, I'll meet you then, they don't. So they always have this, and you, of course, you always have to respect that and explain, but if you think this question is stupid, don't answer, you know, you can, you can set your own limits. Uh, but I mean, there is a danger sometimes that as the, the holy Westerners coming to save the poor people of the world, that we'll say, like, oh, are you sure you really want to speak? I mean, they're adults, they'll tell you or not. And you have another level of, especially when you do research in conflict zones, if you are seen as being someone that's exploitative. I mean, at least I never did an interview, even when I did not through English or other languages, on my own. There's always people there. And if you mistreat people, or this part of your local reputation, I mean, you are observed and your behavior is observed, and it's easy to, I mean, you can be censored if you are seen as overstepping what would consider the boundaries. That was at least my experience. Just shortly, I'll uh, just think about the question of how to be more ethical in your research. So I think the key is honesty. Honesty in terms of being transparent, being kind of elaborating on the possible implications, impact and scope of the research, and maybe sharing your research with the interviewees, share, sharing them and kind of asking for their feedback. So that would be a way to kind of more democratize and have a more ethical process. So I'll just leave it with that. And on insider, outsider, so I think the concept of multiple identities is important there because no person only has one identity, so it's quite complex. And I agree with what Bahar has said, so I'll just keep it with that. Uh, yes, and uh, just briefly, I, I would say I definitely agree on the, the issue of language. And that, that, uh, but in addition to that, I think that, I mean, um, I think it's important to be aware of uh, different languages, different concepts and terms, but also the different uh, contexts in which they emerge and in which they sort of um, they, they circulate. So, for example, I mean, in, in the, the context of um, sort of my own research in uh, some uh, which involved looking at some sort of um, sort of prominent figures, notables in uh, Martin after the uh, um, sort of. Uh, armistice and the, the Ottoman uh, exit from the, the First World War. I mean, their their sort of petitions uh, to um, to attend the Paris Peace Conference, uh, for example, involved. I mean, there's there's a sort of international global context there, and various words and sort of terms that are being used in that sort of context of nationalism, civilization, progress, and so on. And then there's also a local uh, context and different, you know 
oftentimes sort of multiple uh, languages uh, at play as well. So I would say that it's absolutely uh, crucial also to advance sort of further research in this sort of uh, field. Also, you have to be aware of the different languages and also the different contexts and the, and the how the terms can sort of travel from one <coughs> context to one language to another. So, yeah, that's what Thank you. Um, let's take another round of questions. Uh, I mean, about the insider and outsider, that's a really interesting. Well, why is it important? I think it's important because of the, you know, I've also done field work. Uh, so I, I have a lot of things to say, but I don't want to say. Please, so please. But, you know, in terms of, I think it's important to just be aware of the dynamics of being an outsider or an insider and how it shifts and changes as you are doing your field work and depending on the individual you're talking to. It doesn't matter, I think, if you're an outsider or an insider. What matters is that how you're reflecting it and how you're aware of the ways in which it's shaping your understanding and what you produce and your engagement with the, with the field. Like, that's why it's, it's very important, but it's important because of that, not because, you know, who, who, what, 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 what does it matter if you're a Turkish or a Kurdish or whatever, you know, it's just you're, you have interest in the subject, subject, you're passionate about it, you want to do it, but it's important to, um, to, be, to, be, aware of, to be aware of that and think about that. Um, it's just, yes, uh, so let's move on to, uh, you, you wanted to come in, right? You wanted to say something? I mean, I, don't, I disagree with you, but later you can talk, maybe, because what you mentioned, that later you can talk, I don't want to take time, because there's not that much time. Okay, uh, so let's take one, two, three questions. Uh, Thank you very much for your presentations. So I did my field work in uh, the Kurdistan region of Turkey as well, so you all mentioned about the people's suspicion of your intentions to start with. So my main concern went well, back in 2009 when I started my PhD, LSE didn't have any ethical procedures, <laughs> ethics application or anything, so I didn't have to go through that process to start with. But now we have to work with the consent forms and I can't imagine having, a, on having an honest conversation with people if I ask them to start, I mean if I ask them to sign a consent form to start with. So how do you think we can overcome that problem? Uh, Ibrahim Sirkeci, I'm a professor of Transnational Studies at Regents University London. I am also former co-editor of Kurdish Studies Journal, and I'm Turkish. And <laughs> I did field research on Kurds in Germany about 20 years ago. There wasn't, there weren't many, you know, Kurds uh, studying Kurdish at that time. But I want to ask one question and a brief comment. The the question is that you know you have discussed you have discussed objectivity and in a relatively pejorative way actually and I, I disagree to an extent but I believe you are trying to make a point about reflexivity when you reject objectivity in that sense because I think there is a disciplinary you know difference I mean you are kind of all from IR background international relations and I think that is a little bit you know, behind some other disciplinary areas because in anthropology and geography, reflexivity came in charge pretty much 20, mm -hmm. 25 years ago, big time. And uh, ever since we have been discussing reflexivity as the major concern, and before even these ethical forms came in place for litigation purposes anyway. But I think that is, that is important to, to, to 
differentiate and maybe I, I mean, this was the question I had in mind. Like, did you, thinking after, of course, Begum and Mark, I, I believe you are still doing your PhD. Uh, you can probably, you know, integrate that into, but for Bahar and uh, Francis, I mean, do you now reconsider like, you know, maybe there's a degree of reflexivity, mm -hmm. that acceptable degree of reflexivity, uh, at least we should impose as a minimum standard. Hi there, and uh, thank you very much. It was very informative. It was lovely. Uh, my name is Liat, Liat Kolin. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a Jewish girl. I have family in both, both in Bakur and in uh, Israel. Um, my question is going to go to Bahar. Bahar, I know that you did some field work in Israel. Yes. Regarding Jewish cards. Yes. Um, I read one of your paper. I'm not an academic, but I read a lot. Um, before I ask my question, uh, Zeynep Player, you finished your uh, sentence by saying it doesn't matter if you're Kurdish or Turkish. I don't agree with that. It does matter. It may well, not matter. I, I didn't. I, I said it, but you're taking what I said out of its context. I said it in the context of. Uh, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not trying to corner you. No, no. I agree, and I understand what you are saying. But obviously, it doesn't matter if you're Kurdish or Turkish. If you're a researcher, if you're interested in the subject, you go and and you you keep your objectivity as much as you can, and you you do your what what you're intending intending to do that's fine but if we're talking about um if we're talking about an 80 year old woman who who was given her son's burned body and bones then your identity your turkishness is an obstacle she may not like to talk to you in that sense it does matter um, well, yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree with you. And yeah. what matters is that you have we have to reflect on that and understand our positionality Absolutely. and think about how this is affecting what we are, how we are understanding, what we are thinking, and how we are yeah. producing it. So and you know, I'm, I'm I'm really glad to hear that you guys are making a big effort to learn at least to learn the language as much as you can do a little ice-breaking chat with your subjects. So that is because Turkic Kurdish people, especially the Bakuri Kurds, are used to someone like Ismail Beşikçi, who is not Kurdish. So they can open up to a Turkish researcher as long as there is some effort from your end. Um, my question to we Bahar. We have another question, and we need answers from the panel as well. Sure. Do you mind asking your question quickly? Yeah, my question is, what was the main difficulty that you faced when you, when you spoke with Jewish Kurds in Israel? Thank you. And let's make this final question, yes. and then we'll go back to the short yes. about the book itself. I haven't read the book, but I'm interested. Um, I am a law, like PhD candidate in law, uh, and I would like to embark on field research in Kurdistan with my legal background. So in how far would you say that this book is, let's say, 
accessible or universal enough to apply to other areas other than international relations or uh, ethnographic studies? Okay, great. Lots of questions. Who would like to start? Shall we start with you, Bahar? Very quickly. quickly. Um, consent forms, uh, you're recording this, but consent forms, I, uh, I upload them to the ethics application and I don't use them in field work. No, it's uh, because uh, I, I think it will affect uh, my field work and I just can't tell people, uh, I'll keep everything anonymous, but here's a legal document that you have to sign and, you know, according to UK law, if the police asks for this, I need to return all the data to the police because it's, uh, it's uh, how things work in the UK. So I can't really do these things and I even stopped um, recording interviews for that reason. I just take notes. Um, and uh, this is what I did during my last trip in, in Kurdistan. Uh, I just take verbal consent. Uh, I try to have a witness. So, for example, when I interviewed the lately Kubat Talabani, he, he had his advisor with him, so, you know, and then they recorded it uh, so that when I write something, they can check. So these things with the elites, it, it goes easier, but with uh, uh, people, I just don't stopped uh, doing that. Um, uh, Ibrahim Ojem, you're right, that's what uh, we were trying to say. So in anthropology, it has been there for a long time, but for, for people who are working on this issue, you know, they come from different perspectives. Not everybody is familiar with these things. And also our institutions mattered in Italy. Nobody asked me to be reflexive or, you know, they just told me go and study this topic because it's less costy. Because my PhD proposal was actually about uh, Sri Lankan Tamils in Canada and the UK. So, uh, but, but you're right. And... Uh, uh, about objectivity, I think, like, you know, at least I'm not objective because I, I am pro-human rights to start with, and this this uh, defines my angle throughout the whole thing. And uh, Kurdish study is also very low that if you read, for example, I can't even tell when I'm reviewing um, articles who is, is pro-Kurdish and who is not, because some people wrote, for example, when Abdullah Hocan is, Hocalan is captured, others write when Hocalan was kidnapped. So even these different users gives you an idea, so it's very loaded. <coughs> and uh, the main difficulty, everything was so difficult for me. I actually, <laughs> uh, so I got this short, uh, small grant from CBRL, and I did the uh, pilot uh, study. I, I went to Israel three times, and... Uh, no, no, just uh, just Jerusalem, because uh, actually I had a very small budget, just uh, five thousand pounds for three visits to Israel, and uh, and also the interpreter. So I will be honest, it's all about the budget. Uh, uh, so I had uh, an assistant because uh, I think without Hebrew, it's impossible to study this uh, this topic for me. And uh, it was easier. I, I had a few leads, but without the interpreter, I couldn't do anything. And I really couldn't enjoy my interviews as much as I do with uh, returnees or diaspora Kurds uh, because I couldn't really understand. I visited people in their homes, you know, people who are plus 90 years old who could tell me all the stories, you know. And, and I just couldn't understand anything. I just sat there. Can I just quickly ask another question? Was your your Turkishness was an issue? It was not an issue at all for me there. It was not an issue. Um, I mean, um, at least even if it was, maybe they asked my interpreter, I don't know. But I, uh, I'm writing my articles now uh, in collaboration with, uh, with a Hebrew speaker researcher, uh, and we do the research together, because otherwise it, it was impossible for me. That was the biggest difficulty. Thank you.
Wait, very quickly, we have one minute. Okay, oh. so go. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Take the, next, the other questions. Yes. Yep. Maybe just kind of to Durkan's question. So sometimes I don't do it. That's the way. So I just stop if, if I find any problem with it. Also, coding is a way to do it. So I, I have some uh, kind of training in interpretation. And uh, so some uh, data were confiscated by interpreters, but then it wasn't understood by the authority because every interpreter has its own code book. So coding the interviews could be a way to protect them. Uh, and also uh, kind of what to take from this book as it for all kind of so there are practical recommendations from the field so that is one kind of uh, general outcome and how different authors deal with power structures and how they relate to their research so that's one way of it uh, and also cases of positionality uh, are also investigated in this book in this book so these are some of the points and I can give another minute to someone else <laughs> well, the non-existent one oh, minute. Oh, yes. Nadine is the boss, so can we take one more minute? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, so thanks for the questions. Uh, firstly, I, I come from social movements, so we're all about reflexivity uh, all along. But I think, of course, we do need to be reflective. Regarding the questions, uh, my project is from the, the early decades of the Kurdish movement, 70s to the 90s. So I quick, I mean, I learned from my people who I was working with and collaborating with, uh, and I mean common sense. I never asked any question to Kur 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 uh, Kurdish movement people in Germany about what they were doing. Recruitment, money, contemporary stuff. I asked zero questions about things like that. And they were much more open to speak about things in the past. I mean, they're in Germany. They can't go back to Turkey anyways. So in that sense, it was much different. Uh, so, I mean, I was very clear to separate the questions I was asking. And then in, uh, in, within Turkish state borders, it's, you had... It, depended very much on the age of people, what they, had they done years in jail, had they not, so it varied into what they talked about, what they wouldn't, and uh, consent forms are, I, I, I don't know what, I mean, it's, I'm lucky that I don't have to do them, but they're not. They're very you can so easily ignore it. Well, I, yeah, I mean, just um, really briefly, I mean, yeah, I would agree definitely that um, IR does probably have or probably did have a historical problem with uh, reflexivity, especially, I mean, compared to some of the uh, the other disciplines. But, of course, now it's, I, I think it's really at the stage now where it's um, uh, it's perhaps sort of moving on or interrogating its own sort of origins and its sort of complicity in, in various um, sort of uh, historical um, sort of uh, problems of phenomena and colonialism and, and, and so on. And perhaps now it's also a, a point in which um, some more sort of contextual uh, awareness of different contexts that we get in sort of uh, intellectual history, for example, where different, where different ideas are, um, you know, how they're um, advanced by, by which particular actors and so on in different contexts and how those contexts themselves are sort of um, uh, interlinked with each other globally and so on is perhaps maybe one one way in which um, that could be uh, sort of overcome and yeah perhaps through sort of taking on board a lot of the um, um, some of the, the insights that we you know we just um, um, that the other speakers have also mentioned about positionality reflexivity and, and, and so on so that's what I would say from that that particular from the particular angle of uh, international relations so, yeah. thank you. This was great. I mean, when I started working on the Kurds uh, as a Turkish Kurdish from one 
uh, women <laughs> with multiple ethnic background person, you know, and then, you know, uh, coming to London also kind of the whole uh, uh, working in a different context, doing PhD, being really poor and, you know, like all those the struggles. I remember those times when I was really craving for discussions about methodology. Uh, and, and you know having discussions with others who are working on this issue and the challenges they are facing for various reasons uh, and it's just and I'm, we, we didn't have that much uh, these kinds of discussions not no book yeah. so thank you for for this important contribution thank you. Uh, to all of us for researchers who are working on these issues uh, doing field work uh, also the ongoing PhD students and the new uh, PhD students who will be doing uh, research on these issues, including the Balkans or whichever, you know, the contested areas, politically contested issues. <coughs> so a great discussion. Thank you so much, everyone, all, all the panel, all our panelists, and thank you to uh, all the audience for coming here asking questions. So let's give a lot of, you know, applause for our